was instrumental in starting this church, Scott's a liar. Uh, I was, uh, Scott was a friend of mine. In 2003, I actually met Lauren Kutzko, who I believe is now an elder downtown at the downtown congregation, at a little gathering for campus ministers uh, at Arizona State University's campus. He showed up to one of these meetings, introduced me, and said, hey, you have to meet our pastor, and we've come out to plant a church. And Scott and I connected a couple weeks after, and it's just been an incredible relationship and a deep understanding that for the gospel and the greatness and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to be seen in a city, you need way more than one church. That I believe this in all my heart, one of the greatest misunderstandings, and I'd even call it a heresy, which is a big word of a deep false perception or false teaching, is that the body of Christ is ever found in one local body in a city. It's just not true. Uh, the body of Christ is throughout the city, and so it is um, our delight and joy to be in partnership with you all at New Valley. I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Church, which is a multi-congregational church throughout the state. Um, and you all have shaped us in tremendous ways, and we hope it's reciprocal uh, in that. So it's great uh, to be with you. I believe Ricardo, the lead pastor of our Tempe congregation, was with you last week. So to be able to be with you all as uh, Scott's on his sabbatical is outstanding. So today, um, I'm going to direct us into Mark chapter 4 and 5. So the end of Mark chapter 4 and into Mark chapter 5. I am a big fan of the Gospels, uh, which I believe all of us are, but here's a, a small little statement on the Gospels. The epistles, which is the word given to the New Testament letters, so the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the epistles really are just commentary on the Gospels, on the life of Jesus. The way in which the life of Jesus and who Jesus Christ is in his life, his death, and resurrection should now be played out in the life of the church and in these particular churches. So the Gospels are very, very central. Um, they're not exclusive. I don't even want to say they're more the Word of God than the epistles. They're not. But they're very central to our understanding, and specifically because of the person of Jesus. There's a quote by Albert Einstein where he speaks about Jesus. And it's important as where we read this quote for you to understand. Einstein says in this quote, he's not a Christian. But he talks about being absolutely captured by Jesus. He says this, As a child, I received instruction in both the Bible and the Talmud, Jewish religious text. I am a Jew. So he's saying right there, I'm not a Christian. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled. Now look at the language by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. That's Jesus. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. Now he's definitely saying you're reading them in a certain way. Right? You can't just pass by him. But he says no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No matter how artful, he's saying, the pen of phrase mongers cannot touch the reality of the person of Jesus. No man can dispose of Christianity with a bon mot. Bon mot just means a, a witty phrase. You cannot dispose of Christianity just by, yeah, whatever. He's going, the person of Jesus is too colossal for that. 
And when I read the Gospels, life comes out. His personality pulsates in every word. And he literally says, I am enthralled by the luminous, the lit up figure of Jesus in the Gospels. So on that note, uh, let's pray before we get into this passage in Mark 4 and 5. Father, I pray that today that by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus would be illuminated, that we would be able to walk out and speak of the luminous figure of Jesus. Father, I pray um, that we would not be more captured by myth than we are by the life of Jesus, but God, we have to experience that. So allow his personality to pulsate in every word that comes out of this text. Let it pulsate deep within us. God, I pray uh, very specifically that we would have an experience with the living Christ, the Christ who is not dead but who is alive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this uh, text starts in Mark chapter 4 in a famous story about Jesus calming the storm. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35, it says, the day when evening, That day when evening came, he said, that's Jesus, to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Now that is a very important statement. He gathers his disciples, he's on the edge of this lake, and he says, let's go over to the other side. So right away, because we're going to ask this question through this text of why does Jesus do that? It's an intention to go over to the other side. That doesn't seem as extreme now as it may later. Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Now understand that almost always in the gospel, there's these scenes where Jesus is with his disciples, but then there's a whole nother group following him. That's a big statement. Loved or hated, the best are never ignored. People say that in sports, right? So Jesus was loved by some, he was hated by others, but he was never ignored, ever. There was always crowds of people going with him, and then there were always these encounters, always is an extreme statement. Many times, there are these encounters where Jesus is going with a crowd, and then they are met by a crowd. So, and then they come together. Two crowds kind of come together with Jesus at the center. So you see that there were other boats along with them. As they get out on the water, there was a furious squall that came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, Mortimer Adler has a great book called How to Read a Book. And one of the ways Mortimer Adler speaks about how to read a book or how to engage a story is specifically enter into the story. Any great kindergarten teacher, first grade teacher will say, enter into the story. Make it such that you feel like you're there. This is true of any great movie. This is true of any great book. Any great narrative gets you into the story. That's why they talk about character development, almost like these characters are developing around you in such a way that you're in their midst. So realize as you're there that as these waves come up over them and swamp them, that what the disciples are experiencing is these three Fs, fight, flight, or freeze. Those are the three Fs that people will say come out of anxiety, like Carson was speaking about this morning, is that your body, under stress of many kinds, begins to go into this mode of operation of fight, flight, or freeze. 
So many of them right now probably aren't trying to fight, but they are probably trying to get out of the situation or they're just frozen. In the midst of trying to get out of the, the situation, get what they're experiencing. They're like, Jesus, aren't you going to do something? You're sleeping. Don't you even care if we drowned? He gets up. He rebukes the wind and the waves, says, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? That feels like a very non-human response. Very non-human. Like you're in the midst of a situation where you're about to die and you're asking me why I'm afraid. But he says it fundamentally about faith. They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's the question that goes now all through the beginning of chapter 5. Who is this man? It really is the question of the totality of the Gospels, the New Testament for that matter, is who is the man Jesus that the Gospels themselves and the letters of the New Testament begin to build out of who Jesus is, the man Jesus. But this man has just stilled winds and waves. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? I'm going to say a statement that should be very well accepted in the life of a church, but Jesus is foundational. He is the basis. If you want to talk about worldview studies, he is the first principle in which we view the world as Christians, but the way the Bible talks about Jesus. It's not that he's the first principle in the way Christians view the world. It's that he's foundational, fundamental, the first principle of the whole world, regardless of who acknowledges it. My wife, um, we're both getting older now, so there's these things that happen to your body when it comes to what you eat as you get older. I want to blame it on the environment and preservatives and additives, but maybe it is you just get older. But she's had some things go on with her gut, so she's now basically a vegan. But she, if she were here, she'd say, I am no convicted vegan of like trying to save the animals or, you know, I know what God told Peter about kill and eat. So it's, it's, she's like, it's not that, but she eats for the purposes of her belly. Well, a couple years ago, she said to me, I found this incredible recipe for vegan ice cream. And I thought to myself, vegan ice cream? Like, that feels like a contradiction in terms. So she's like, here's what you do. You freeze these bananas, and then you take them out, and you unpeel them. You throw frozen bananas in a blender. You blend up the bananas. Then she takes it out. She pours the frozen bananas over um, or into this bowl, and then she blends up strawberries, and she creates this little strawberry sauce that goes on top. And she puts it in front of you, and you're like, this honestly looks just like ice cream. When you put it in your mouth, it has very much an ice cream consistency. So I took a bite of it, and she's like, what do you think? And I'm like, it tastes like frozen bananas. <laughs> and she's like, but it's vegan ice cream. And I'm like, well, here's the deal, babe. It's missing one foundational element. <laughs> cream, right? It's not ice cream. It's frozen bananas. So ice cream's foundational element is cream. Here's what the Bible says. The foundational, foundational, fundamental element of the world is Jesus. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, hence why he can say to the wind and the waves, peace be still, and they are. So they get through the squall. Now remember that they probably still have hairs standing up on their body. They were so scared. 
Right? Adrenaline hits you in such a way that you don't just go, oh, now it's over. He said, peace be still, and we're all fine. Right? They're still breathing. Like, what in the world is going on? To when they come across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, many of the people in these boats were Jews. They would have never gone to the land of the Gerasenes because it was an unclean land full of Gentiles, as evidenced later in this passage by pigs. Okay? So it's an unclean land that they show up on. So they're scared to death because they've just been in a squall. They're coming to an unclean land. And Jesus gets out of the boat, and a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now, that word came in other translations is immediately. The word actually means directly or straightforward. So it's like literally they hit the shore, and immediately this crazy man is sprinting at them like an NFL linebacker, right? So now put yourself in the scene again, right? Fight, fight, or flees. We've been in the midst of a squall. Now they're terrified that Jesus just stilled the storm, and they're like, good Lord, who is this man, right? Then they land, and this raging lunatic in their minds is running at them, and clearly, as the passage will say, is screaming. So again, remember Mortimer Adler, how to read a book. Get into this scene. I mean, it can be funny at a distance, but if you're there, this isn't funny by any stretch of the imagination, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. So let me just pause for a minute and ask this question again as we seek to answer the question, who is this man, Jesus? Why did Jesus set out to go to the other side? To an unclean land, to face a squall, to encounter an unclean man. The man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the hills. He would cry out and cut himself with stones. Let me submit to you this. There's no possible way we will ever answer the question of who is this man, Jesus, unless we slow down long enough to ask the question of who is this man that's cutting himself with stones and screaming at the top of his lungs. Let me say this again. This is extremely important. You can't understand Jesus, who he really is, unless you slow down and begin to ask serious questions of the people he engaged that no one else, and if it were modern day, including you and me, would ever have engaged. So if that's true and we want to know Jesus, we have to slow down long enough to go, who is this man? Understand this, because our propensity, the way we're naturally going to respond is to move on and immediately go, He's demon possession. But never ask the question of these demons are possessing a real man. As we'll go on in this passage, it's not just a demon. When the demon is asked the, his name by Jesus, the demon says, I am legion for we are many. This man has many demons upon him, but it's a real man. Now look at me and listen to this. This is a real man who had a real name that now's known just by the community as the man amongst the tombs. 
The man whom they tried to bind, who they viewed as a danger, was born by a real mom. If they had Mother's Day then, this mom would have been celebrated. Who had some real father, who likely had moments of sanity in his childhood where he played with real kids in real streets. A man who probably even at this same time had dreams and aspirations at this point just of being freed, but at some point in his life had dreams and aspirations like most of us did. For a normal life, for a successful life, to not have to worry if people like him or don't like him, to not have to worry about where his food would come from or what he would drink. He had real dreams and real aspirations, but now he's utterly dehumanized, not just by the demons, but by the whole entire community. He's not acknowledged as one with a name. He's acknowledged as one that's absolutely a danger, one in whom they have to shackle hand and foot. They tried to restrain him, and it says in the passage they could no longer restrain him. All of these are realities of the demon possession, that his strength is so great He's so out of his right mind. But even in situations of the demonic, and whatever you want right now, I have my own opinions on what this means, these people likely go in and out of, let's say, consciousness. Moments where the real man comes about and is crying out. It says he was crying out day and night in agony. Don't ever forget. This isn't a message on demonology in Satan, but don't ever forget that the enemy is out to seek, to kill, and to destroy. There's nothing ultimately fun about this. His words are false words that will start and seem very harmless to the point of seeking, killing, and destroying. And this man is under that oppression, and he's crying out night and day. It says he's literally slicing himself with stones. Most of you in this room know, and some of you may not, that even today there are many people that they'll talk about that self-mutilate, that cut themselves. And the question of so many people is, why would somebody ever do that? But it's that the whore inside is so bad that if they can get their minds and emotions to be attentive to physical pain, the physical pain is far more relieving than the internal agony and emotional pain. So this man says he's cutting himself, and he was cutting his feet on the chains that they had chained him with. So if you just sit and think about this, and it says night and day, he's screaming, crying, and cutting himself. That means his body's covered with fresh blood and dried blood. Blood that had dried and other blood that's now fresh. If he's cutting himself night and day, likely all over, he doesn't have many clothes on, We'll see later in the passage. And this is the man running at the boat. That's a scary scene. But what we need to slow down and understand is that it is a real man. When Jesus, from a distance, when he saw Jesus at a distance, he ran, fell at his knees in front of him, and shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. Now stop and remember this. Remember what I said about loved or hated, the best are never ignored. I'm not saying that like Jesus is the best. Oh, yes, that's not what I, I'm just saying. In the end, he is so dynamic. He's so, here's a big word, enigmatic. People are like, are they just shaking their head like doggy head tilt. Who is this man? That they couldn't stay away from him. He was in a very real way like a moth to a flame including a demon-possessed man. When from far off, 
the man in the tomb saw that it was Jesus in the boat, he sprinted towards him and fell at his face on his knees. Now, they've just asked the question, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And now a multiple demon-possessed man sprints towards him and falls at his knees. Don't ever forget what Paul tells us, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. What will they confess? That Jesus is Lord. What is the confession of this demon-possessed man? What do you want with me, Jesus? On his knees, son of the most high God. In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied. For we are many, and he begged Jesus again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. Every time I read pigs in this passage, I think about, my girls are older now and they're not into it as much, but they were really into Peppa Pig. You guys know this cartoon, Peppa Pig? It's a British cartoon, and it's like three-year-old drawn pigs, like a little circle with a little pig head, and they walk around and speak in British accents, these pigs. <laughs> it's phenomenal, right? Like, Peppa, Peppa, and they, and it's so like my daughter started speaking in British accents because they'd watch Peppa Pig so much. So I'd get to this point where I'd joke with them, and I'd be on the other side of the house, and they'd turn on Peppa, and I'd go, turn off the pigs! And then these little girl voices would go, I like the pigs, right? And I'd go, turn off the pigs. And then they'd be like, but we like the pigs, ha <laughs> And they'd laugh, that's like Peppa Pig has these laughs, so they'd laugh like that. And every time I read this passage of when the demons ask, please send us into nowhere, and they're like, send us into the pigs, and he sends them into the pigs. Now look, at in this passage, there's herdsmen, that now the demons go into the pigs, and the pigs run and they run off this cliff, and I just imagine the herdsmen like, but we like the pigs, <laughs> right, at these moments. But here's the thing that's amazing. I want to slow down all under this question of Jesus. Why did he go? That question is why I said to you, if you don't slow down and understand who this man is, Here's the first thing you need to understand about Jesus. All throughout the Gospels, he has this moment where he says, I only do what I see my father doing. And I only do what I hear my father telling me to do. So it's his eyes and his ears. It's his relationship with the father. In Psalm 10, look it up, says very clearly that God hears the cries of the afflicted. This passage begins with Jesus saying, let's go to the other side, getting into a boat. You want to know how it ends? Jesus getting into a boat and leaving. What's in the middle shows you God heard the cries of an oppressed man and he sent his son. Jesus is always being propelled into situations you and I would never want to encounter. And he encounters them with this very non-anxious. The disciples are freaking out. He's like, God sent me. He's not, he has this real non-anxious presence. 
which is a theory in parenting that we'd parent with a non-anxious presence. The question is like, how do we get to that point? Right? Jesus was in such communion with the Father that he never had a moment of wondering, am I supposed to actually be here? Am I gonna encounter danger ultimately? So one is he's in such relationship with his father. The other one is his calling and his commission. In Luke 4, verse 18, Jesus speaks very clearly about his call. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Was the Gerasene demoniac poor? Yes. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives or prisoners. Was the Gerasene demoniac a prisoner? Captive. The recovery of sight for the blind. This man was blind in so many ways. To set the oppressed free, was he oppressed? He was. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then his commissions established that the Father sent the Son into the world, 1 John 3, to destroy the works of the devil. Ken Geyer has a quote that'll come on the screen, and I love this quote. It says, this man's body had become a beachhead for Satan. And it is onto this beachhead that Jesus now lands. Think Normandy. This man's body had become a beachhead for Satan. And it's upon this man's body that Jesus now lands to destroy the works of the devil because he's come to set the oppressed free, because he heard the cries of the oppressed through his father saying, I've heard them, go set this man free. Folks, it all ends with the man in his right mind, and I love this. If you want to understand Jesus, this is one of my favorite parts of this whole section. Let me make sure I'm, uh, I'm still in Luke. We're in a different gospel. Mark 5. Um, so I love this part. So now it says, a large herd of pigs were feeding on the deep side. The demons said, send us to the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gives them permission. Then tending, verse 14, those tending the pigs ran and reported this in the town and the countryside. The people went out to see what has happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now there's a word in here most of us never recognize. Dressed. I think that probably means that Jesus brought the man clothes. I don't think he had a classy closet in the tombs. That he went, you know what, I better go get dressed now. I think Jesus knew what Christ had called him to do. He sits the man down. The man's now calm under the presence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Jesus dresses him. The herdsmen show up. They're like, what in the world? This man's in his right mind. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, told him about the pigs as well. And the people were like, but we like the pigs, right? They're afraid like the man, but they're like, the pigs, which was their livelihood. It was all about money. It was about commerce and consumption. They're like, the pigs. And then they say to Jesus, get out of here. Now, you're learning about Jesus. In the end, the man stills. Everybody else begs him to leave. He leaves. He gets back into the boat. Folks, hear this. He came over for one man. He faced a squall, an unclean land, an unclean, dangerous man to set that man fundamentally free. And in turn, 
pronounced the gospel of what Christ came to do to all the people that came in boats to follow him and all of the people of that town of Gerasene to show up at the moment, he pronounced the gospel through one man's transformation. Now, we're going to end with this because this is absolutely incredible. There's three times this word begged, depending upon your translation, begged or in other um, sections here, it says specifically, so it says the demons begged, send us among the pigs. The people of the land begged him. It's the same word, even though it says plead. Verse 17, the people pleaded with Jesus to leave their region, and then the man later pleads to go with Jesus. Now listen to this. It's the same word. There's no way Mark's not intentionally writing this. The demons, folks, demons plead with God, have mercy upon us. And he grants the demons their request. I could take a lot of time about what I would do if demons gave a request to me. The polar opposite. Jesus gives them what they want. Yes, go into the pigs. They go into the pigs. The pigs run out and are now gone, possessed by demons. The herdsmen now see that, and they're like, but we like our pigs, and they plead with Jesus, just get out of here. And he grants them their request. But the man pleads, now Jesus, the man who he healed, let me go with you. And Jesus goes, no, go tell everybody what I've done for you. Folks, Jesus is merciful in ways we would never be merciful. But when he grants us, because he did grant this man mercy, he was crying night and day for liberation and freedom, and he granted him his request. But then he said, I'm not going to transform you, but to use you. And he says, go tell everybody what I've done in your life. He never, 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 never will say no to a plea for mercy, even from the demons. God is a mercy-giving God all the time but he'll never grant you mercy of a way out from being used that other people might receive mercy. He calls us and he commissions us fundamentally and foundationally. And here's why. Jesus in a very real way, a very real way, delivered the man amongst the tombs and used the man amongst the tombs because he knew there's a day coming when I will He knew this, where I will have dried blood and fresh blood running down my body. When the sin of the entire world and all of the oppression, right, all of the blindness, all of the darkness, all of the works of the enemy will fall upon my very body, where Christ's body will become the beachhead of Satan. And he said, you will tell everybody about me. Everybody about me because I came to seek and save that which was lost. Folks, Mark's very intentional that we would slow down long enough to see the man, the person of Jesus, who is, who was the one who said, you want to know the heart of the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the heart of God displayed in the man Jesus who sends him out and then he gets back into the boat and takes off and ultimately says, my work's done because of one man. If this means anything, as we move into a time of communion, it moves what the author of Hebrews said. Therefore, 
Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence, knowing that God will always meet us and help us in our time of need. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your great 